Welcome to Performing Black. Performing Black is a celebration of the work that pushes the culture forward and a conversation of the work that leaves us wanting more. Oh, damn. This podcast will make you laugh, but most importantly, it's going to make you think. Performing Black is a celebration of black people and black art. Love, of course. Right, and we're going to get right into our conversation today because we do have uh, a special guest with us as well. Um, we were able to have a conversation with the amazing Dominique Thorne. And so we're just going to talk about this amazing film, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, and we're going to share our conversation um, with one of the lead actresses in the film. And let's just get right into this talk. A.T., what were your thoughts about Judas and the Black Messiah? Well, first, before we jump into our thoughts, I just want to let the listeners know what Judas and the Black Messiah is, if they're unaware as to what the film is about. So Judas and the Black Messiah follows the story of Fred Hampton, leader of the Chicago chapter of the Black Panthers Party, and the story of William O'Neill infiltrating the organization, uh, working with the FBI to kind of take them down. And this is this film was directed by Shaka King, executive produced by Ryan Coogler of Black Panther, you know, fame, and written by both Shaka King and Will Benson. My thoughts on this film are, I am very appreciative that they were able to humanize Fred Hampton um, and and William O'Neill and tell this story in a way that is you know outside of the textbook, bringing them to life, really showing us the layers and the steps to how William really worked with the FBI to culminate in Fred Hampton's unfortunate assassination and really put into context the levels of evil that this country will go to to stamp out black power. I thought the performances were varied. Um, Lakeith Stanfield was a standout for me. I feel that he really committed to showing how one gets into the mindset of betraying one's own people, really, for your own gain. The reason he went in to do this and work with the FBI was so that he wouldn't get jail time as a petty theft around Chicago. So those are my thoughts uh, initially on Judas and the Black Messiah. What about you, Kenzie? I agree that humanizing Fred Hampton is important. And with this film, I'm unsure <laughs> if Daniel was the correct choice for that film. Um, that is what really bothered me about the film, really, was um, 
this affected accent that he was giving that I just, you know, was like, I, I understand it, 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 it is doing the sonic thing that sounds like Fred Hampton, kind of. And uh, it was very distracting, to be honest, too. It was very distracting. But um, I agree that Lakeith Stanfield um, was a standout. I thought he did some exceptional, exceptional work. Really enjoyed the music as well, or the scoring, rather, the scoring um, of the orchestrations and things like that. I thought, I felt like there was this drama that you really see in Ryan Coogler's work too, like this drama, um, and it um, and it impacted an audience member, which I did enjoy that aspect. But there were some directing challenges. Can you can you, you know, expound upon what you mean when you're saying was, there were some you know, directing challenges? Um, I think that Shaka King has great vision. I think he has a cinematic eye. I don't think that he um, understands character and building character, you know? And I think that he lucked up and got Lakeith, who is, you know, good at what he does. And Lakeith just, you know, ran and did it. To give some context as to who this director is, uh, Shaka King, even Martin he King is. I mean, I know that he's like the, the he has most recently worked on projects man, like you know, HBO's High Maintenance more. as a director. <laughs> and his first feature <laughs> you know what I'm film was like Mr. Newly and, about. Um, um, I'm gonna get you sucked. Two folk who you know, um, but, were um, high and uh, <laughs> met one another. Yeah, and that, he and Ryan Coogler actually met at the Sundance Film Festival back in 2013. Um, that is where Ryan also displayed his Fruitvale Station film, which you know premiered to critical acclaim. And the two of them became friends and this script came across Ryan's desk through Shaka and uh, Ryan then became a producer. And so really this is Shaka's first att attempt at a drama feature film. And so Kenzie, I think maybe some of the trepidation you have about his directorial skill on this film stems from that as he's used to directing comedy perhaps let's talk about lakeith you know i thought what was really interesting about lakeith's performances is this meta meta dramatic um perspective that he's trying to convey to the audience so he's acting and he's acting undercover acting. as well right, right. and i thought that he was able to do you know, both of those things simultaneously quite well. You know, mm -hmm. it was quite it was quite remarkable um, to watch that work. I think in the moments that that really came through was when he was really under pressure and being questioned as to his intentions mm -hmm. for joining the group. And the guest that we're uh, interviewing today, Dominique Thorne, she actually plays Judy Harmon, who was a security leader uh, for the chapter. <sighs> And she was really on his ass for pretty much the whole movie. She was suspect of him, I would say, if not from the jump, pretty close to it. And him being under that pressure, even the first scene they have together in the car, when she holds that, pulls the gun out on him and starts questioning him, I think that was the moment where we really, we really got to see what he was about to give us for the rest of the film. And it was like an awakening that, oh, I'm actually going to have to commit to this role if I'm to actually infiltrate this group. Oh, let me let me put on for real, for real. <laughs> A few moments ago, you were mentioning how uh, how Shaka kind of put this story together. And starting at the beginning, I think it's interesting that we open with Lakeith's character, William, in this interview, being asked how he would tell his, his son about the 60s. 
And it really positions us to see him as the protagonist. And I find it interesting that the film is supposed to be about Fred Hampton as, you know, the Black Messiah. And so it's really kind of this fight over whose movie is it as I'm sitting watching it. I'm wondering what you what you thought about that as you watched. I think that that accent alone uh, let me know <laughs> whose movie it was supposed <laughs> to be. <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, I mean, and then, I mean, I don't know. It's called Judas and the Black Messiah, so it's both their movie. There's one performance for me that supersedes the other one. So, I, I, but with the death, though, <laughs> it makes it seem like I mean, it is, you know, Judas's story. You know, mm-hmm. Judas, you know, he lives. It's, I think that footage uh, that they're referencing. Um, with the opening and the interview is from the Eyes and the Prize documentary. And mm-hmm. that aired, um, it aired January 15th, 1990. He killed himself the next day mm-hmm. or that same day or something like that. So <laughs> it's such a tragic story, you know? Right. Um, I'm not sure that I am into the ways in which we build up martyrs. But this, you know, religious, you know, comparison, I don't know if I'm into that, you know, and trying to exalt, you know, folk in that way. This isn't, you know, it is a story, but this story is, you know, not uncommon, you know, to our community. And so that comparison, you know, to Jesus and, you know, Judas and all of that um, is a bit much, but I also get the, the correlation as well. I think, too, what's interesting about this film is, you know, I don't know that I don't know that I had had it in my mind that Fred Hampton was really as young as he was, that he was 21 when he was assassinated. And for him at that age, I look at myself as a 23 year old and for him at that age to have grown up seeing figures like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X already be assassinated. And so he took it upon himself to start and continue the work that they were doing within his own community. And it resulted in a similar, similar death as those two men. And that is really the work of this country. I feel to continue to, Mm. to stop the movement, to stop the progression and I wonder if that's a reason we don't have, you know, a figurehead now in our movement. Well, definitely. I think that, you know, there's this conversation that happens a lot about, you know, who is our leader, you know, and, and, and right. where is our leader, you know. Um, and I do think that that part of that is that no one wants to be sacrificed. There's no one that is willing to make that commitment. I mean, because Fred Hampton, in the, you know, even in the film, he has that conversation. She's, you know, his partner says that he's, you know, he has dedicated his life to the revolution to the revolution right. in so many words is what he tells her i was i just was wondering where where were the women uh, that were in the movement mm-hmm. you know and watching this film but even beyond that like you know i wanted to see even there was engagement with deborah johnson and judy Harmon. And I wanted, I could not grasp yeah. the emotional, I couldn't grasp the relationship, you know? And that was troubling for me, you know? Cause I think I needed it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, there was so much I needed mm-hmm. to see, you know, to see that. And I don't know if that's if that if that's because how we're trained as movie watchers, you know, but I needed to see that I needed to see that relationship. And in that one moment where I thought they had the opportunity to show it, um, you know, when Fred gets arrested. Um I thought it was a it, it did not land for me. I do also want to say that I thought that Dominic Fishback is a standout. Um, I thought in the beginning of the movie I was quite nervous. She was able to show, <laughs> you know, this uh, specific, this wonderful tenderness, this soft, simple tenderness um, that I thought was so good. But you don't get to see it until much later in the film. Yeah, I will say. The best scene to me, honestly, were the large group scenes. So that includes when the Black Panthers met the crowns in that auditorium space and they were having that face-off. And that was honestly the moment the movie also picked up for me. Because the first probably 20 minutes of the film, I was ready to go to sleep. But when they had that face off and you could feel the tension in the room and we had the underscoring of the strings kind of playing on that tension as well, that's when I really became engaged with what was happening on screen. And then toward the end, when Daniel gives, you know, the famous speech of I am a revolutionary, though the accent was a little cringy. I did feel the power of that moment and I felt the energy in that room. And I, I think Shaka captured that effectively. And so I I would say like the group scenes really were the best for me as a viewer. Would, do you include the car scenes in that as well? What'd you think about the car scenes? Some of them worked, some didn't. It was the one where they were riding over to visit the crowns first at the pool hall. That that kind of transitionary movement or action that was happening, that didn't work for me. It didn't do anything. It didn't propel the story in a way that felt necessary to me. They were really just talking about what weapons they had on them and that they needed to leave them in the car as they were to enter this pool hall, visiting their quote unquote rivals. And that felt just kind of cursory to me. It was just like, okay, how was this propelling the plot? I mean, the opening car scene uh, was the one for me where um, <laughs> um, the man stabs the knife into the top and he just looks at the knife. I was just <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, what? I was yes. just like, this. <laughs> what just happened? What? You, you, yes. Okay, you need to, to gawk at it for a second. I was like, that's crazy, you know? And then how long it took them to get out of this very small bar, like it took them forever yes. to get out. And I was like, the bar is tiny. <laughs> What's happening? What's happening? I will say I do appreciate that they opened with showing William O'Neill, you know, stealing from Black folk already. And you know, betraying his own community before he even gets involved with the Black Panthers or the, and the FBI. And so uh, that was that was important to tell and to show, to build that character in, in the screenwriting. Is Shaka slated to direct anything in the near future? I have not seen any news. I do know that he said when signing on to this project that originally, because of the exhaustive history of the Black Panthers, 
he saw it first as a TV series, but he didn't think that he would be able to carry out with energy uh, producing that series because he was saying it might have resulted in maybe like five seasons or something to f- mm-hmm. fully tell that story. And he was just like, I-, I couldn't do that. I didn't have the energy for that. So he, he wanted to make it into a film. Um, but no, I don't see any news as to what he's directing next. I'm just a soul whose intentions are good. Oh, Lord, please don't let me be misunderstood. Well, as we continue our discussion on Judas and the Black Messiah, we thought that we would go right to the source. And we are so lucky today to have the amazing Dominique Thorne, who played Judy Harmon in film and and AT is going to take a second and just um, tell us a little bit about Dominique before we invite her to come and talk and laugh and do what we do. Ms. Dominique Thorne made her feature film debut in the Academy Award winning film by Barry Jenkins, If Bill Street Could Talk. And she played the role of Sheila Hunt, who was the petulant younger sister of Fonnie Hunt, played by Stefan James. That film, which premiered at the 2018 Toronto Film Festival, received critical acclaim and accolades, including the AFI Awards Movie of the Year, Independent Spirit Awards Best Feature, NAACP Image Awards Outstanding Independent Motion Picture, and one of National Board of Review's Top 10 Films of 2018. Thorne will next be seen starring opposite Daniel Kaluuya and Lakeith Stanfield in Warner Brothers' Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King. This film follows the story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his fateful betrayal by FBI informant William O'Neill. Ms. Thorne plays Judy Harmon, a fictional character who is a member of Fred's security team. The film is also executive produced by Ryan Coogler and Charles D. King, and will be released in early 2021. Dominique, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to hop into this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here and to get to chat with you guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Of course. Um, So, Dominique, you know, you're new, pretty new to, you know, Hollywood and the film scene, and you are making, you know, quite a wave, you know, with these (laughs) amazing huge credits at the beginning of your career. But tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and all of that. Yes, I am from Brooklyn, New York, East Flatbush, born and raised. Um, I'm the child of two immigrants from Trinidad and Tobago. uh, And I really can't say that I had much theater or film experience before high school. I really got into this thing. I got bit by the bug around that age. I just decided that I was only going to apply to performing arts high schools. You kind of, you have to apply to most schools uh, for high school in New York. And I decided that that is how I was gonna approach it. I was only gonna apply to schools that offered some sort of artistic something. Um, and I got into the Professional Performing Arts School or PPAS where I studied drama. I was a drama major there. Um, and from there, I just got involved in a whole bunch of local theater companies, uh, teachers had encouraged me to apply to uh, artistic, uh, like competitive programs. I did a bunch of 
uh, competed in some uh, poetry recitation things. I was just as involved as I could possibly be um, around that time in high school. Uh, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's kind of my, my beginning there. Now, y'all, Dominique is being very humble. Um, Miss <laughs> Thorne is a 2015 United States presidential scholar in the arts, okay? Um, let us not forget that. <laughs> yes. Wow. One of my, uh, my, my senior year uh, performing arts teacher, he, Mr. Parenti, shout out to you. <laughs> he told me that I should apply to this program called Young Arts. And I was kind of, I heard him and I received it, but I I didn't really have much, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I expected too much from it. So I kind of just put it to the side and I let it sort of linger in the background of my memory until the deadline when he had asked me, he was like, so like today's the last day, did you apply? And I was like, oh, wow, completely forgot about that. No, I did not. And I remember after school that day, I rushed home and me and my dad, my dad, I he made I made him get his um his iPad, you know, the the OG iPads back then. And he pulled it out and I recorded my little clip in his bedroom <laughs> and we sent it out literally a few minutes before the deadline. Like I probably had about five minutes left to make it, but I made it faithfully. Um, and from there they chose about it was about six of us. It's like ten thousand applicants all across the country and they chose six students to participate in the spoken theater program and from that they choose two students to go to the nation's capital at a later date um and those two become the united states presidential scholars in the arts so yeah i was fortunate enough to to receive that in in 2015 and and go down to our nation's capital it was it was really really cool and i think that's kind of also the moment that my parents <laughs> realized that this might be a little bit more serious <laughs> than they um, than they had expected. Wow. So, I mean, what comes to mind for me is, you know, natural talent. Uh, fun fact to our listeners and supporters, you know, what we, all three of us have in common is that we were students at Cornell University all at the same time. Yes. Dominique and AT were undergraduates and I was a graduate student and What's crazy is that I got to see you in this dreadful play in my department. <laughs> the, the, the performing and media arts department. We got to watch you, you know, watch um, Eugene O'Neill's All of God's Chillin' Chillin' Got Wings. All of God's Chillin' Got Wings. And, you know, the director had this, you know, crazy, you know, take on the show and wanted to actually, uh, I guess we would call this immersive theater in a way of sorts, you mm -hmm. know, decided to have the audience to segregate as if they were in um, an early 20th century um, theater. And it was just awful. It was a terrible experience, but <laughs> the the shining light, uh, seriously, the shining light in the show was your performance. And so I, you know, went to art schools and went to an arts college, you know, a very, very competitive one. So I know what, you know, that kind of talent looks like. And it shocked me because you weren't a PMA student, right? Correct. I was firmly in human ecology. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm just like, who is this woman? She's not a PMA student. She's up here acting for her life. And 
mm. at this school who is not known for theater. So like, I mean, tell me about natural talent. Like, you don't have to be humble. Like, what do you what are you feeling? Because clearly, it's true. Your career has taken off. You know, yes. you left Cornell, and then next thing we know, we watching Bill Street, and I said, "Is that the child from <laughs> Cornell?" <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's insane. Well, thank you for those words. Thank you, truly. Yeah. I mean, they really do. And I, I feel like I, whenever I'm listening to these sort of things, I feel like I hear the, the talent say all the time, like, oh, it means so much. But it really, really does. It really means so much because you say natural talent, but I don't think that I necessarily came up in, while I was fortunate enough to find like programs that supported me in this way, I didn't necessarily come up in an environment that affirmed this path or this choice. Um, and as I was alluding to earlier, it was really something that I, I will say sort of came out the blue, but I firmly believe, you know, God wanted me to be in a particular place and that's why I applied. But other than that, I have no 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 explanation no justification for why i got into this world but i know that as soon as i did i had never felt more aligned more in tune with who i am supposed to be i remember the very first uh play i ever did i started in theater and the very first play i ever did was a midsummer night's dream and i played uh puck and that was a beautiful just like fully immersive experience for me to get to you know explore what it means to to use the full range of my body like the full physicality to really embody this non-human being to to get to discover the power of my voice like what it requires what it takes up to fill up a a, a theater for several nights for however long the run of the show is i think that was the beginning of me realizing just really getting it in my body and realizing, wow, like this, I feel alive. <laughs> like I feel like I am living right now and I had never felt that before. And then of course, I through some of the, the I was a part of this youth uh, company called MCC and they really encouraged people to uh, write their own work. So they we had like a performance every year, but it was made entirely of things that the students had written. So this was the first time that I'm getting to to express myself, not hiding behind a character and see what I what does Dominique look like or sound like or feel like as a writer. And that was another sort of awakening for me to realize that this is it became very therapeutic for me. I think that's what uh, hooked me and kept me in there was that I realized I had a lot to say. <laughs> like I had a lot going on inside, a lot of feelings to feel. Uh, you know, I mentioned I was the, I'm the child of immigrants and that was a, a very uh, strong or heavy influence on my upbringing and, and, and the way that I, I related to my peers at the time. All of that I didn't realize or I wouldn't realize until later, like these things wanted to come out of me and they were coming out in ways that were probably not the healthiest before. <laughs> but once I found theater, it was like, okay, like this now becomes power to amplify somebody else's message or to convey my own human emotion and hopefully like affect change or inspire a sense of like empathy with somebody else. You know what I mean? And, and that, that was just a very powerful feeling to a very powerful force that I think, I think I just, I, I needed it. I felt like I, I had to cling to it as much as I could. So that's really what, what 
had strung me along <laughs> all this time. And when I got to Cornell, I felt like, how I need more. How can I get involved? Because now I'm not studying anything that gives me that same sort of exercise that I had become like, I had really begun to appreciate. So it's it's really it really is next level to to feel so strongly about something and to fantasize about it for so long and then like you said it it, it seems almost instant to that it it's starting to click and it's starting to work but it's been and I know you know uh, time is is relative I guess <laughs> but I remember I started I first started auditioning for a film which I was foreign to me and I did not like it <laughs> I first started senior year of high school so from then to now I've been really getting to exercise what it is to audition for these things and so it, it really does feel like incredible to and, and without the same sort of guidance that I was fortunate enough to receive in high school or in those theater programs like that film and and film technique and and camera acting was something that I, ha I had to kind of figure out on my own. And so that had, had been a very personal journey, I guess, as an actor. So it really is so fulfilling to see it, it, progress, you know, from something that I had been trying at for so long and not knowing <laughs> if this is making sense to anybody, <laughs> if it's really working out. So yeah, I appreciate all those words. <laughs> I really, really do. And it, it truly is amazing to to watch, to see, to experience. Now, Dominique, I have to say, you know, I've been on stage with you and being able to watch you even from backstage is a soul lifting experience. And then to see that translated on screen is mm -hmm. even that much more beautiful. And mm -hmm. every time I watch you, I am inspired. Um, and you, I can tell you put so much work and so much care and love into your performances and into crafting your characters. Mm -hmm. And so I also want to mention to our listeners that Dom booked If Bill Street Can Talk while we were still in undergrad. Yeah. So that film came out, was it your senior year? I think it was June. Oh, came out, yeah, like 2018 going into 2019, yes. Okay, but y'all filmed it your uh, junior year? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, and can you talk a bit about just that experience from going from Cornell to getting into the film industry and even continuing on after you've graduated? Yes, so I, I just, as I was kind of touching on, I really felt detached once I got to Cornell, I, I was feeling very unlike myself because I, I felt, I felt this very strong, I don't know, this very strong need, as I'm sure both of you can relate to, 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 to ascend to the the heights of whatever your given field is that you're studying. I had uh, entered Cornell as a policy analysis and management major. Uh, in human ecology because I was very, and still am, but at the time I was very passionate about uh, immigration legislation. Uh, and I wanted to do the very best that I could. And so I, I was putting my all into it, but there was this huge hole and I, I, it, I, I didn't really second guess it. Like I immediately went to the performing arts department, like maybe in like my first week on campus <laughs> because mm -hmm. I knew I had to be uh, involved, but I quickly realized that doing that was not compatible with <laughs> my studies. It was not 
the best choice for excelling in the ways that I had wanted to. Uh, so I had to draw all the way back, which is why I think All God's Chillin' was like my first and last performance until senior year. <laughs> I just, I needed to get it together. So what I started to really focus on was my uh, audition tapes. I had uh, joined my agency uh, my senior year, right before I was leaving for college. And they were actually the only people that were willing to work with me if I decided that I was going to college, which was for me, non-negotiable, but I had met with so many other people that were like, yeah, you have no career if you go to college right now, um, but not them. So what they would do is schedule all my auditions uh, through tape. So I'd record it myself, smush it together, and then I'd uh, email it off to them. And that's how I was auditioning. But uh, it was it was very much a, a, a balance. I was essentially splitting the difference between Cornell and my academics and uh, auditioning and, and trying my best to audition as much as I could because I knew that I wanted to be, excuse me, I knew that I wanted to be uh, involved. Um, yeah, just involved. So I was doing tape after tape after tape. I can't even tell you <laughs> how many audition tapes I was here doing. I was pulling any and anybody who would spare five ten minutes to come record this scene with me <laughs> so I can I can get this tape in and so I, I remember being in New York actually around the time of the the Beale Street audition and and they my agents had said that they weren't even really auditioning for the role yet but since I'm actually in person they're gonna see if they can get me in so they did that I went in I did the read I went back up to Cornell um and then they, they asked for another tape. I did that, I sent in the other tape. Uh, and then again, I, I would come back to New York when I had eventually booked the role and I would do, um, I'd come down for my fittings or the table read and then I'd go back up to Cornell. So it was a lot of trying to balance. It was almost like another job. It was mm -hmm. like, I'm studying and I'm doing my schoolwork, but I'm also having to be very strategic about sectioning or carving out time to to do this thing and to try and do it well or as best as I could um, and it is so easy to get dejected or, or lost or just confused to, 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 to slack off on validating yourself you know and because I had no sort of there was no like check for my work essentially it was like if I got a call back, okay, maybe I did, I was doing this right, but I had no type of on-screen experience. I mean, I had done like a, um, uh, like a the NYU student film was, that was like the, the thing to do when I was in high school. I had done one of those, but outside of that, I really had no film experience. So I was really trying, I was just uh, recording it and then having to watch myself and sort of critique in that way and, and edit it off and, and see what I wanted to change and hopefully do better and then hopefully hear back from somebody. And I think I'd only really gotten like maybe two or three really serious callbacks out of all these audition tapes that I was uh, sending off. Like I think on average, I could probably say I was doing it like on, you know, sometimes they're like slow points and then sometimes you're, it's back to back to back. But on average, at least I'd say maybe three to four tapes a week on average, maybe then sometimes you'll hit a drought, but um, 
yeah so it was it was really like a, a self-education in in that in that sense so when i had actually gotten the part for beale street i was like okay <laughs> i guess it was worth it like i guess i'm 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 doing i'm doing okay or i'm getting better or i, I can stick with it and i'm not <laughs> wasting my time yeah my introduction into this industry was really sort of like a a self like an observational one. Well, I mean, clearly you have a great eye. And I'm so curious <laughs> over here, we are a celebrant of Miss Ingenue Ellis. And oh, as A.T. Yeah. stated that you played her daughter and if Bill Street could talk. So I'm just, I'm wondering, you know, since that's just your bit, first big film, like, were you able to talk to her? What gems did she give you, if any, um, that helped that, that have stayed with you as you continue on uh, in the nascent stages of your career? Yes, absolutely. I too am a huge Anjanu Ellis fan. Stan, we love her. And mm -hmm, she, she actually mm -hmm. she really, really did. I remember um, one day in between like shooting that scene, she we were sitting down on this uh, couch in the green room and she just sort of began to talk to me about more so about uh, life and my perspective as a young person right now rather than as a young actor. And I think that was huge also. Um, I was really just inspired by her work as an activist, as an artist at the time. So I was ready <laughs> to soak up any knowledge um, that she had. And I remember she shared like a few TED Talks with me at the time and, and her perspective, or at least the impression that I had walked away with from her perspective was really one about being clear with yourself about what you want to say, if anything. You know, what is your perspective? And don't negotiate on that for the industry or for, for the world, you know, um, which I think was crucial and critical to me at the time, because like I said, I had no real direction with this thing. I was sort of just putting one foot and I feel like I still am <laughs> just putting one foot in front of the other and you know using that intuition to walk where I feel like I should go and so to hear her say this was just further confirmation to me at really the the early 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 stages to continue to put as much energy into my personal development as I am into like the development of my skill uh as an artist and I also think just on screen, I mean, just working with her, she put her all into that scene. Like, or at least that's how it felt to me. I really did feel like she is doing this. You know, it, it sort of reminded me about those very foundational things you learned, like the reality of doing. Like that scene, the moment when we're about to leave and we're walking out the door and she sort of like throws herself back. She really threw herself back. <laughs> And now I'm here, you know, having to really catch her and it just things like that, that really just the small things that really reminded me like, oh, yes, like this is that this is the essence of being alive and in it that first and initially like fascinated me and, and drew me in. Um, so, yeah, she is amazing. She really, really is. She's phenomenal. I have so much love for her. I really do. She actually sent me a, um, when I had crossed because she's also a member of, of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated. When I crossed in 2018, which was now after the film, she actually sent me a, a robe that was crimson and cream. And oh. I still have it. I use it every day. 
Now, these two films that you've done, If Bill Street Could Talk and Judas and the Black Messiah, are both period pieces. And I'm wondering, just on your perspective as a, as a Gen Zer, you know, how is it putting yourself into these, um, into these plots and telling these stories? And what's the I difference between it. the two films for you? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm really appreciative of a good period piece. <laughs> and I think, um, especially at the time, I remember reading uh, the novel If Bill Street Could Talk before I had gotten the script and in preparation for the audition. And I remember just being so taken by this story by Baldwin and his way with words and feeling like it was so necessary it was just as relevant then, unfortunately, as it is now, seeing like the, the lack of care or respect or love for, for Black bodies, essentially. And I remember reading that and being like, wow, I want to see this on screen. I really want to see this piece of true, pure, unadulterated Black people in love, a black family that is loving and kind and supportive of each other, a black father who is so very attentive and and aware and conscientious. I just felt like from the beginning to the end, there were just so many messages at the time and still now that I desperately wanted to see uh, actualized. Um, and then of course, the fact that it was like a Baldwin novel being translated for the screen I thought was huge and so that was a great honor and then I think also with um, Judas and the Black Messiah again the initial the sort of preparatory work to prepare for the audition or prepare for the the role had opened me up to a world of knowledge that I didn't even realize I was walking around without uh, in the way that I was. I didn't realize how much I didn't know. Um, I, of course, I've heard of, of Fred Hampton, but I did not know the extent of his, I don't even know if sacrifice is an appropriate word, but the extent of his willingness to give, of his 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 life being the mission, the mission being one with his life. Like I just didn't realize um, just how how deep this story goes, how deep that commitment was, how deep the the drive was, or wh- how deep our our nation and our our government's involvement was uh, in the in his murder. I didn't I didn't realize how much I how much that I I feel like I how much I feel like we as a as a cohort at least coming up in school did not learn about this the fact that there were so many uh prolific members of the party that are just absent from our education i felt and feel is wild so to know that this too is a story that is yes it's it's centered on on Black people and we're very much at the center, but it's also being being cared for and being brought to the screen by Black people. Shaka King, Charles, Ryan, all of these people are giants. <laughs> these are amazing people. Zinzi, all these, these people coming together to make sure that this story is told. Again, it just felt like such a monumental and a necessary thing. So it, it's, I think it's beautiful when we can, especially when 
the effects of it or the point of it is still relevant today, no matter how sad or disturbing that is. I think the fact that we can tell it, if we can tell it in a way that is useful and healthy, then I think oftentimes looking back in that way is so helpful and it can be so, so, uh, what's the word? Um, maybe educational for how we move forward or what that looks like, you know, for our, our generation to move forward. So yeah, I think they're equally as important, equally important stories and it's wild how relevant and how, how helpful like they can be even now. Well, let's just jump right into, you know, talking about Judas and the Black Messiah. You play Judy Harmon, which uh, I've learned is a fictional character. What do you think this film is about? You know, what is Judy Harmon's insertion? How have you negotiated this fictional character in a real life event? All of those things. Yes, this story is about Fred Hampton. It is about the life and the legacy of this young man. It's about the power and conviction of a purpose and a purpose fully realized. Um, I think Judy being a fictional character was uh, a lot more nerve wracking for me than I think I, I initially expected it to be. Yeah, the, the Chicago chapter of the Black Panther Party, the Illinois chapter was nearly 50% women as I think the the women of the party play just as an important role as uh, the men, obviously, and they created such a large portion of the party that it was necessary to have solid representation of women in the film. And that was, that point was something that Shaka and I spoke about fairly often because there are many moments, many scenes um, on screen, on set, where I was the only female face. And I... Especially in I, that car. Yeah, I, I remember um, the that the scene with the crowns when we, like, pull up to their headquarters. I, someone told me, I, I didn't even... I wasn't even really thinking about it, which I was thankful of, because I feel like that's more in line with Judy. But it wasn't until someone told me that I realized, oh... Outside of the people behind the camera, I'm the only female body here right now. <laughs> like, this is a whole auditorium filled with men, with uh, beautiful Black men, but there's only one female here. And so I, my primary thing, and I, I, I say this all the time, and I said it's shock all the time, <laughs> is that I did not want Judy to be a, a prop. I did not want her to be, like, the 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 female that we have in the room simply for the sake of saying that there's a female in the room um it was so important to me that if this woman is going to be here if we are creating her in here that we're creating her to have a perspective and to serve a purpose that is uh relevant and supportive and and that it amplifies you know um it's it's not combative it's a it's a narrative that is is healthy you know um in its representation of of women um and so i i sort of like just personally i guess battled a lot with with how do i how do i breathe authentic honest life into her and not make this like a trope you know like not this this not a stereotype of anything but very much 
a woman with drive. And I remember some of the, the guiding things for me come back from just her character description. You know, she was, they described her as uh, dutiful, tenacious, uh, astute. The fact that she was so, you know, she's always, she's the first one to suspect you and the very last person to trust you. These are things that I, uh, she's the the only female on uh, Fred's sort of, you know, his, his, his B team, you know, like his, his black ops team, if you will, the, his, these are his hitters and she's the only female present. There's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason why she's on this team as a person. And I think that for me became like more important, like her role as a member of the security team. Like, what is that? How does that inform her? You know? And I think just educating myself on Fred and his influence helps a lot with figuring out um, her drive. Because once you learn more about who Fred is and how he is, it's so clear to see how and why somebody would rally behind him. Um, and I think for Judy, her reasons to live, they're all very much her reasons to die. And I think that was sort of a, 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 a guiding factor for every scene, for every moment. You know, for her to always be aware, and if she's not aware, and if she does have, if something does happen to slip by her, it's huge for her. You know, and you feel it, and you can see and feel her tightening up. You know, you know that it's not going to happen again. Um, and yeah, I just, I really just wanted to make sure that if she is the one to represent women in that way, because of course we have the amazing Deborah Johnson played by Dominique Fishback. You know, we do have that as well. I just wanted to make sure that that she's she's fulfilling her purpose. And even even that, the the one moment where we do see just females on screen where uh Judy and and Deborah Johnson get to connect, it was so important to us that this was a moment of like care and tenderness and love that when you see these two women on screen is you see them there to support each other you know um that it's it's them there for each other no matter how it it whatever the results of that are at least that you know that they're coming to it and they're coming to each other again to protect each other to love each other to make sure that they have each other's back I wanted to see more of that, actually. And that was, I'm glad that you brought it up first. I wanted to see more, um, and I have to say, I'm not sure that, you know, King was, was successful in, you know, demonstrating precisely what you just described, you know. Uh, I mean, because this show does critique, this show does, like, you know, analyze as well. Um, I did love the moment where you approach her, you know, knowing you know this this woman's intuition this woman's instinct you know so i wish that we got to see more of that but i also wanted to know you know your final scene is you know the shootout scene and you know from watching ashton sanders character uh the way the kiss part in the movie kind of plays out up until like the whole the commentary that the that the police are giving before the shootout it was a very to me very intense very traumatic to watch. So I'm wondering how that, how was your mental health while you were doing this film? What um, systems were in place that helped you work through that as you go through these moments that seem, you know, very intense, particularly, you know, with the political climate that we're in right now, presently in this country? Yeah, it, it was just as intense to do and to be a mm -hmm. part of no doubt. There is no doubt about that. And I think 
um it's such a that is that i think the environment that is created on set is so 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 informative and so telling about uh i guess how much trust and how much uh reliance you can put like just how much of yourself you can actually show how far can you really go how raw how honest can i actually be here i think that is so uh indicative of the environment that's created um and also to your to your point earlier uh shaka was very uh communicative from the very beginning to the very end it was all like a conversation and so that is something that he's uh, addressed and acknowledged and 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 said he said it in interviews he said it to me and i, I and I, I we've definitely like come to an agreement like that will always be a space where we can have improved you know the representation of women for sure um but even just talking about what that uh conversational tone that he had that space for for conversation that he created i think that is ultimately what allowed all of us to to go there you know to allow the the trauma to flow through however it needed to flow to allow it to really play out in a in a genuine and honest way i'm so thankful to have had an an experience like this with people that i feel like i can genuinely trust you know even in the the few experiences that i, I have had uh, whether on set or you know uh, on my way to a, a production whatever it is it's so easy to feel like um to get in that the 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 ego side of the of the actor's mindset you know to feel like oh i i'm an artist i'm a performer and to get more caught up in the job or the performance of being an actor rather than being fully present and what you and giving an offering you know giving more of of like of of sharing what you have to offer as an actor or as a person to this role or to this character and i think that the latter is the energy that everybody showed up with so it was very much a a space where i felt like i could trust these people and so i can trust myself in the room uh to 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 give this performance or to just feel what it is that um i'm feeling i remember the day of the shootout there were absolutely tears <laughs> that was actually my um my 22nd birthday <laughs> yeah oh, wow. uh, the wow. the thing so it just felt very uh transformational uh for me through and through i had to kind of take a little walk you know take a lap and come back um and there was space to do that to take that time and to to ride those waves it was so it was such a respectful and respect uh generating i guess uh environment you know um and and even some other members of the cast will will say too that like if you feel it then that's that's beautiful to us because it was really there and it was really happening i wasn't present in the for the final scenes of the film but i remember when i had seen them uh like on the the little screen i, I definitely went to support and you're sitting there and you're watching it play back and and now you're shaking and you're in tears because the connection is real you know the it felt very like oh this I, something that Daryl says that i i really uh appreciate he plays uh 
Bobby Rush is that uh, for him, it felt like he was, when he says goodbye to Chairman uh, in that final scene, he said it, it felt like he was really saying goodbye and he was in a sense, you know, we're about to wrap and here comes the end of this journey that we all got to go through. One of those scenes was actually filmed on the 50th anniversary of his, of Fred Hampton's murder. And so all of that just sort of unfolding in the way that it did with the people that it did, it just felt way too ordained to not recognize or to not make space for. And I think, um, I really think there was something special about the, the environment that was created that even allowed something like that to transpire in an honest way. Um, so I think, I think, yeah, major props <laughs> to the, the, I don't know what it is, if it's the, the, the cultivating of the set or the, the way that the, the people to fulfill these roles were, were chosen or whatever it is, but so much respect for the, the work for Fred Hampton and for his legacy. I think that was the, I think everybody realized that that was at the forefront. That is the point and purpose of the story. And so there was just so much, so much that can happen, you know, when we're all on the same page in that way. That's so beautiful. And I want to make mention that um, Akua and Jerry and Chairman Fred Hampton Jr. are credited as cultural experts on this film. Yeah. And I was wondering if you had an opportunity to speak with either of them as you prepared for the role or if they visited set at all. Yes, absolutely. They were very much present, very much involved. And I remember um, uh, Shaka and uh, also, uh, the, the the writers, everyone that was involved or that wanted to, to have this come to have this story told, it was very important that you know their blessing was given. You know, I think it would be a very different movie if they weren't on board and they, we didn't have their okay for this. The Lucas brothers also stressed that that was essential to them, um, and so there was actually a day, the first day, that uh, I got to meet them. They had come to set and afterward, in between some scenes, uh, we had like a, a, a little dinner with them. Um, and it was nerve wracking. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> it was definitely nerve wracking. They, uh, Mama Akua and Chairman Jr. did not hold back as mm. I am, am grateful for. And, and I think everybody can say that it was a beautiful thing to, to receive, to be you know, sort of pressed in this way, you know, like they were very much ready to know and to hear why, why are we here? You know, mm -hmm. like, what is your true, why are you telling this story? Like, what do you hope to get out of this? What is your reasoning for this? You know? Um, and I remember they, they sat and they shared stories about the time and, and helped to provide perspective. If we had any like sort of questions, you know, I, I, I definitely asked about like, women at the time how to how just to get like a little more perspective on on what your experience was and and how you felt about all of that um but the the thing that i remember most for sure would be that sort of uh interrogation of our core you know and what is really at our center when it comes to to telling the story or to being involved um in the ways that we were um, I remember they even went around the table, <laughs> they even went around the table and, and, you know, asked, you know, different questions and wanted to get, just wanted to get our perspective to really hear where we're coming from to this story. And I, 
I guess I tend to be more introverted, you know, if it's not like a, I, I just really appreciate listening. <laughs> so I, <laughs> I was doing, I was listening and Mama Kua was surely like, hi, hello, miss. Um, so what do you have to say? <laughs> you know, <laughs> been awfully quiet, you know? Um, and I, I, I love that because it was, it was real, you know, it was genuine. It was like, this is, this was a very real man with a very real impact. And to be a part of it is the very real honor. It really is. Um, and so I would have expected nothing less. And it was a great, great thing to, to be on set and to see them there, you know, behind the camera or, uh, under the tent watching playback and, and giving their feedback. It, it was comforting almost, you know, mm-hmm. um, even the uh, the Black Panther Cubs had come to set one day and they're just talking to us and letting us know, like, you know, this is very much a real life thing. This is an ongoing thing. Chairman Fred Jr. will actually still message us from time to time with like things going on, how we can be involved. Like, you know, this is very much... Yeah his real life you know this is a very real this is every day you know this is the everyday for real so it was a beautiful thing and i think a necessary thing for the the health of the film ultimately now i wanted to um say also that your character kind of is <laughs> the main one who is kind of suspect of william o'neill from the jump and <laughs> Even your first, the first lines you utter are telling him to get down to the floor and do some push-ups, um, yeah. kind of reprimanding him for his behavior. So it's so interesting that you play that role throughout the entire film. And on, on that note, I want to ask just your final thoughts of the film, if you could just wrap up your experience and what you think um, the importance of this film is in this time and what it's doing um, and about that legacy that it's leaving. Uh yeah, I think it's because Judy was so suspect of this man from jump that she was when she begins to realize that like they are losing control or things are just not correct, like this is not how things should be, you know, power or control is starting to slip away. I think that's very much why she went all in the way that she did because she realized that she needed to do something, you know, that something needed to to happen to in an attempt at least to course correct. Um, I think it, it was it was an honor. It was just truly an honor and so educational and informative to me, not only as an actor and someone that's trying to learn. I said this about uh, my previous experience and I am so blessed to be able to say it about this one. It was really like a phenomenal masterclass. I could not have asked for better teachers or castmates um in that in that during that uh, production period i felt like every day i was learning something new whether it be about the craft or the industry or whatever it is my perspective it was a beautiful beautiful environment to be in and, and beautiful people to learn from uh truly so i'm so humbled and i'm so honored to have been considered and to also have ultimately been a part of telling the story of amplifying the story and the legacy of Chairman Fred Hampton. I think my primary hope is that more people our in our uh, age range and, and even younger, older, that they'll, they'll see this and they'll feel, um, feel that it is possible for them to be involved in a way that does matter, that their involvement is not as 
being involved in a way that makes change is not as elusive as it's sometimes made out to be. All these people that we were playing were our age, if not younger, 18, 19, 20. Uh, Fred Hampton was 21 when his life was taken and the impact that they made. We're, we're talking about it right now, <laughs> you know, all these these years later. So it's it's so possible and change is possible, as is evidenced by the by the action that they they that they took. So I hope that people do feel a bit more that the hope is renewed. You know, that uh, it, we're reminded of our collective power and our collective brilliance um, and our, our ability, our ability to really, you know, make some noise and make change when we, when we need to. So a beautiful experience through and through. And I am so honored to have, to have been a part of, of telling that and sharing that. That's absolutely beautiful. Um, and we're very proud of you, Miss Dominique Thorne. Yes. Our time with you is nearing its end, but word on the street is that you are not cashing Trump checks, but you are about to cash a Marvel studio. <laughs> and so we want to know if you can talk a little bit about that. And we want to just close with, you know, what's next for you? You know, what's next for you in terms of career? Next, What's next? For you in terms of your bright future as a young woman what's next miss dominique yes yes i am again so amazed and in awe of uh these projects that have been lined up and that i'm fortunate enough to receive so i will be stepping into the role of ironheart who is a uh young super genius that creates the most advanced suit of armor since iron man um, she's a young black girl from Chicago, and I think it is so beautiful and brilliant that her story will get to be introduced to the world uh, on screen in this way. I think it is so exciting, and I'm so ready to dive in and to see what 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 this looks like and feels like. Um, I'm so so ready and so so honored and so so excited. Um, I think. Next from here is just to continue to, to seek that work, you know, to continue going after those uh, films that have a story at the center. The story is the focus. The story is the goal. Um, and that to me right now, that's the, the guiding the guiding principle <laughs> with the work that I hope to do. I pray that I'm able to continue that and to continue doing important work with important and beautiful people. Um, and yeah, we'll see. We'll see what God got up his sleeve. I'm on the need to know, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Come on, God. Come on, God. Dominique, we are so honored to have you here today. Um, can you let the people know quickly, uh, where can they find you on social media? Oh, yes. My one and only social media <laughs> is Instagram. I'm on there at Dominique Thorne. Come find me. Let's be friends. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Thank you for having me. This is a beautiful conversation. So glad to reconnect with you guys. <laughs> My closing thoughts uh, on the film is that I think that I've just now gotten into Lakeith Stanfield. I don't know that I was before. Oh, my closing thoughts on this film are that I think it was, yeah, like, as you said, beautifully shot. Um, 
I think the writing could have used a bit more work just to really lock in the connections of these humans and to establish the stories there. Um, I, I do like that there were insertions of the documentary pieces, um, both from speeches that Fred Hampton made and interviews of William O'Neill and you know, positioning these two against one another is interesting. I don't know that the religious aspect and the religious um, kind of illusion was seen throughout. I can't say that. I think they tried to make it clearer toward the end, particularly when uh, the FBI agent um, visited the Black Panthers. He appeared like twice in the in the crowd, which is an allusion to the crow, you know, um, appearing three times before Judas betrays Jesus in the Bible. And I think they try to incorporate that in certain ways. And it's interesting, though, that religion doesn't actually come up in the film that much. And so to have that be the metaphor for this relationship works on some levels. But I think it's definitely worth a watch. And it's a, it's a good piece to go into the Black History Month. I'm excited that it's coming out at this time and that it adds to the conversation of Black liberation in America. All right. You better be fluent and articulate and poetic (laughs) on today. Okay? You got me to raise my fist. I'm raising my fist. Y'all, thank you all so much for listening. Please make sure that you follow, like, subscribe, okay? And tell your cousins and your friends, your coworkers, and all of your family. Um, you can follow me at at the shadesmith artsy dot allen is where yes, you yes, can yes. follow at. <laughs> <laughs> Thank y'all. Thank y'all.